The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. The violence of opinion around them and how that was whipped up and possibly motivated and funded sometimes externally by political interests is a dangerous indication of what happens when we fail to explain the law well to the public and the role of the different people involved in legal processes. Hello, I'm Becky Anderson, and you're listening to The Hearing. In this episode, I'll be talking to Will Moore, CEO of Full Fact, on the ethical duty of lawyers in the age of misinformation. I think this is a critical period in history. Any one of Brexit, Covid or climate change would define a generation, and we are living through all three of them at the same time. We are also living in an age of rampant misinformation where it is becoming harder to discern the truth. Lawyers spend their careers sifting evidence and digesting and assessing huge amounts of information. I think we have a skill set which seems to fit almost jigsaw-like with this particularly modern problem. The Hearing Hello Will. I've rather boldly stated that we live now in an age of misinformation and as the CEO of Full Fact, which is an organisation dedicated to countering misinformation, I wanted to ask you, is my characterisation accurate and how, how did we get here? I think, sadly, and despite Full Fact's best efforts, it is accurate. One example of that from another field is the World Health Organization declaring vaccine hesitancy as one of the top 10 global health risks last year before the pandemic started, partly driven by misinformation about vaccines. But we see it in lots of areas of life and anyone who's a specialist, for example, in EU law will very much recognize the power of misinformation to affect law and legal policy and the future of a country. And actually, if you look around the law, Senior lawyers, judges have been worrying about the effect of misinformation on the law for years and years and years. James Mumby, when he was president of the Family Division and Court Protection, talked about confidence in the family justice system being too often based on ignorance, misunderstanding, misrepresentation or worse. Lord Newberger warned about the same about inaccurate reporting of the Human Rights Act. Lord Dyson warned about stories that are either simply not true or only had a grain of truth about them on compensation culture. Lord Wolfe warned about sentencing all being distorted by misinformation. I guess the question I'd ask, though, is how new is it? Um, Yes, we have a problem with bad information affecting people's lives through the law. But we have long had a problem with people just being wrong about what's going on in the world. What I think is changing so fast now and really affecting the way that public institutions like the legal system relate to the public is the fragmentation of where we get our information from. When Full Fact began in 2010, you could basically look at a a few TV channels, and 10 newspapers and have a pretty good idea of what the news was in the country. That's a laughable description of the world now. (laughs) And that fragmentation of information, there are many more sources of information that you can access than people do access. um, And people get their information from more sources. And by and large, it's harder to tell at first glance when when any individual source that you see is true or not has consequences. 
One of them is it makes it much easier to contest what is true and what is not, to kick up dust and make people unsure about what they can trust. We're seeing that in the context of a pandemic with life-threatening consequences. Another is that authority does not carry in the way it used to carry. People are less deferential to authority, social research shows, than a generation or two ago. But also, traditional sources of authoritative information reach less far because the channels they used to rely on, the Today programme, the 10 o'clock news on the BBC, the front pages of the newspapers, reach less far. And, you know, we're the best one in the world. The Supreme Court, which has done a great job of trying to be more open to the public and engaging, probably isn't going to master TikTok anytime soon. (laughs) Um, I have said, I think, on the podcast in the past that I am worried that it is getting harder to have true democracy with the level of misinformation that we now have. Um, Do you think that's right? How do you think this relates to democracy? I think it is right. I think it's a really profound challenge and threat and made more profound by the fact that you cannot protect democracy by restricting freedom of expression. Mm. Um, When we look at the range of ways people are misinformed about the law, there's a real range going on. We have the truly outlandish. I don't know if you've ever heard of a conspiracy theory called the Freeman of the Land um, conspiracy theory, which essentially extracts ideas from 1215 Magna Carta and things like that and suggests that citizens have a right to uh, form themselves into a jury and and challenge judges. And in fact, in one case, a group of people try to arrest a judge in court. Uh, This has spread across all sorts of common law jurisdictions and pops up. There was a oblique reference to it when a video circulated online of a group of people marching into a hospital um, and trying to remove a patient, a friend of theirs who has been treated for COVID, with the doctors warning them that if the treatment was withdrawn, this person would die, this man would die. But they were quoting ostensibly their lawyer recommending the treatment be given, the patient be given zinc instead of the treatment the doctors uh, recommended and were giving them. And they made an allusion uh, they used the phrase, I am an officer of a court, which sounds like it echoes the language from a Freeman of the land conspiracy theory. So there's this real fringe of dangerous ideas of sort of pseudo legal basis leading to real harmful action in the real world. That's one side of what we can see having consequences. And if you extrapolate that out, some of the anger being built, particularly online, is being directed at people in public life. I know women lawyers receive abuse, women in politics receive abuse. Anyone who stands out in public life is prone to being attacked in a way that wasn't possible before uh, life online. And inevitably, if you discourage some groups of people more than others from taking part in public life, that diminishes our democracy. But there are other ways people misunderstand the law too. So we see a lot of sort of DIY law. The opening up of legal information is a brilliant thing and it needs to go further, but it also allows people to do a well-intentioned misunderstanding of the raw text, which are, let's face it, hard, if not impossible, for non-lawyers to understand. <laughs> uh, very true. Very, very true, I'm afraid. And I say that as a non-lawyer. <laughs> I know that I've had conversations with people in the past who have come to me and and quoted laws and I've said, ah, but what you don't understand is that word does not bear the natural meaning you think it does. That word has been refined over, over 50 years of case law and now means something quite different. 
Exactly that. Or, you know, something a judge has said in the course of a judgment, which is not actually a statement of the law, but a non-lawyer could easily think it was. Mm. You know, it's very easy to misunderstand the law. One thing we saw recently was a claim that um, it was a criminal offence to ask somebody to wear a mask um, because it would be a criminal offence under the Equality Act um, because you might be discriminating against disabled people. And this was somebody who had taken a sort of mishmash of bits of the Equality Act, put them together and got 15. Um, with the help of Emma Dixon, a barrister at Blackstone Chambers, we managed to explain what the Equality Act does. By the way, the Equality Act basically doesn't create almost any criminal offences. If you discriminate against somebody, it is almost always a civil matter. Um, but this nonsense was going around. And in some cases online, a solicitor's firm's logo had been stuck at the top of the notice that some clearly non-lawyer had written uh, with this threat around. But I also want to draw attention to another aspect of this, which is that the law is actively misrepresented for political purposes. And that's what actually those judges were talking about, the misrepresentation of the family court system, the misrepresentation of immigration law, misrepresentation of human rights, compensation, you name it. We see instances of politically motivated misrepresentation of the law. And as the rule of the law is the thing that brings us all together and underpins democracy, that is hugely dangerous. And that is not just a question of ordinary people on the internet doing it, that is a question of power, and accountability. Mm. It's politicians, sometimes government ministers, it's national media who need to be accountable for the way they represent the law to all of us who are subject to it. I think that's very true. I think that it seems to me these days that no area of uh, information is immune from misinformation, but the misinformation we have about the law mostly seems to me to be amongst the very people that the law is designed to protect. And I remember a few years ago having a sort of a sudden realisation myself, which is that as someone who's trained as a lawyer, I've done a law degree, I've spent my time at law school and I've been immersed in the law ever since then, there are certain truths and understandings about the rule of law and what it is designed to do and what it serves and why it serves people in the way that it does and the social contract that people have between themselves and the state as governed by the law. Certain truths around that that I had taken for granted that everybody understood and very shockingly to me suddenly coming to the realisation that not everybody did understand that. And and really I think it, it for me it kind of crystallised around the misinformation I saw happening in the Brexit campaign, particularly around employment rights, as I saw the people around me um, who I live in a, a, an area that voted for Brexit and I saw the people around me voting for it uh, with a total lack of understanding that many of the employment rights that they enjoyed came from the EU and they had no idea that they came from the EU. And I think that I, I, I am certainly very, very concerned, as you say, across family, immigration and, and employment and many other areas, that the greatest level of misinformation about the law is now rooted very heavily amongst the people it's supposed to protect. I think that's right. And I want to talk about a tragic example of that in a minute. But this question of... Lo this question of referendums is important. In California, where citizens' initiatives lead to referendums that become law, um, they have an office of a legislative attorney whose job is to write an explanation of what the effect of those initiatives would be um, in legal terms for the general public before they are voted on. 
And we had in the EU referendum a peculiar mix of a topic which most people did not care very much about, and that's demonstrated mm-hmm. in the polls. Most people did not know very much about, and that's demonstrated in the polls, and which was being actively misrepresented throughout the campaign. And I think the lack of clear, high-quality trustworthy information explaining what was going on that reached into every household in the country and talked about the consequences of the choices was a huge miss. We saw huge demand for the work that Full Fact was doing and we worked a lot with lawyers, academic and practicing, who supported our work on the EU referendum. We were top of the Google searches for the EU membership fee, if you remember the mm-hmm. debate about the number on the side of a bus. And <laughs> we know that we know that lots of people were crying out for trustworthy the information. And I think if we're going to have more referendums, we need to uh, really understand how we can provide trustworthy information to people in that context. But we also need to remember that lawyers are very often seen as partial. A human rights lawyer is an expert in human rights. They're probably also an advocate of human rights. And people who are concerned about a particular issue need to hear from messengers they believe are trustworthy about those issues. And I think there is a danger of lawyers believing that they are always the right people to explain the law direct <laughs> to the public and getting that right. But I just want to touch on that that point you made about the people who are meant to benefit from the law and when that all falls apart. I don't yet know if you remember the tragic case of a young baby called Charlie Gard. I do. Charlie was born, he was very ill, as you'll remember then, and he became headline news. He became um, a a powerful, gripping national story for a few weeks as his doctors concluded that they could not treat him successfully and that they should withdraw treatment and allow him to die. They made that recommendation to the parents. They went to the court of protection over it, whereas the parents were not happy with that conclusion and they um, resisted it in court um, and it was a bitter and divisive and very public and very unhappy exchange. And the lawyers in that case were targeted and mistrusted. There were crowds outside of the hospital um, protesting at what was happening. I've spoken to people in the law and people in the NHS, all fearful for the relationship between both doctors and the public and lawyers and the public, trying to do their best Everybody in in that situation, I genuinely believe, was trying to do their best for the child and the family with radically different views about what that meant. But the violence of opinion around them and how that was whipped up and possibly motivated and funded sometimes externally by political interests is a dangerous indication of what happens when we fail to explain the law well to the public and the role of the different people involved in legal processes. And I think, actually, I would take it further than that. I don't think it's just about explaining the law. I think it's about possibly reminding people what the law does. I think that lawyers often, particularly, I think, around the criminal law, but obviously in the tragic case of Charlie Gard, um, that lawyers become synonymous with the causes that they are defending or mm. prosecuting, you know, And I know that it wouldn't be the first time that lawyers have been targeted for taking on a celebrity client or an infamous celebrity client. I believe that um, Harvey Weinstein's lawyer was targeted 
and, and told that he shouldn't take on the Harvey Weinstein case. And of course, those of us in the law know in our hearts that the reason that you take on these cases is because everybody has the right to a fair trial. Because the, the day you start picking and choosing who doesn't have the right based on attributes that you dislike about them, then we are in a very, very dangerous place. But in order to have that system, which is fair, that means that people who are less than salubrious in celebrity cases must also be defended to the full extent of the law. And that means a lawyer. Well, I think that's absolutely right. But I also think that lawyers romanticize their view of the law sometimes. <laughs> and that there's a benefit in stepping away from that and maybe asking a couple of other questions. I've heard it suggested that political attacks on activist lawyers are completely unfounded and there's no such thing. I also know lawyers who proudly define themselves as activist lawyers. Um, the cab rank rule is not a get out of jail free card for the idea that lawyers take political positions and pursue them through the legal processes. That does happen. And I think it's important to make an honest case about what that is and how that works and how it fits into the legal system. Similarly, the example you gave earlier about employment rights often stemming from the EU, of course, a lot of that is true, the Working Time Directive being an example. But the other side of that is after a referendum, the UK government could prescribe whatever employment rights it liked, more or less than the EU chose to. So simply leaving the EU does not necessarily change your employment rights. Um, and I think that the representation issue, that cab rank issue, is a good example of where lawyers tell a story about the law that is not fully representing the realities of how the law actually works and how legal practice works. And when those stories don't match up with what people can see, I think there is a danger that the hugely important principle behind the cab rank rule of access to representation and having your case made um, is compromised by the fact that there is also an aspect of what lawyers do that doesn't differ from that, but it is separate from that and needs to be thought about. And the other point I guess I'd make that any lay person would probably think when you say that about Harvey Weinstein's lawyers is, yes, everyone's entitled to representation, but why is it that some lawyers cost more than others? <clears throat> well, true. And is it just a coincidence that, you know, some lawyers are more expensive? Or do people who pay more for lawyers believe that they are more likely to get the result they want? And if so, does that mean that justice belongs slightly more to the rich than the poor? And if we just present the romanticised version of a rule of law, um, there's a danger of missing some of the very obvious questions that non-lawyers might ask about all of that. Can you talk more about that? Because that's, as somebody on the inside of the system who has grown up as a lawyer, I am almost certainly um, missing that. You know, I, I certainly have a romanticised idea of my view in the law, and I would be, I'd be grateful if you could uh, pick that apart for me. I think um, I don't know enough, actually, about how most people experience the law. And I think there will be people out there who've done a lot of research on experience of the law. But my hunch is... People see the law through two different lenses. One is the protections the law gives. It might be you know, the rule of law in general. It might be the police coming and uh, 
stopping criminality, helping you when you've been a victim of crime. The other is the law being done to you. If you've ever signed an employment contract, there's a decent chance you've signed up to something that you probably wouldn't have written yourself. If you've ever signed up to use a social media company service, there's absolutely guaranteed that you've signed up to things that you probably wouldn't have chosen to give away. <laughs> um, if you have been in the family courts, you may well have felt like the system is doing something to you. And I think maybe there are different views of the law um, depending on whether you are if you like a beneficiary of it or a subject of it and very often the law is something that is done to us by richer or more powerful organizations institutions companies and so on um, and i think in the same way that everyone believes that paying tax is important but we know that people wonder about why it is that it seems that big companies pay less tax than ordinary people. I think perceived injustices, perceived differences in treatment very easily lead to resentments, lead to um, misunderstandings, um, lead to, by the way, real and justified resentments when, in, mm. in some cases, and also misunderstood uh misunderstood um, concerns as well. And it's just very important if you want to think about public understanding of the law to start from where your audience is, to start from how the public experiences the law, what the public understands the law to be, and therefore communicate with that, rather than, as I think we can easily do, uh, start by talking about the law as an ideal. I suppose there's a couple of things that I would say. And um, firstly, I think you're right. I think that the the way that people are able to access the law when they it is being used against them um, is is absolutely weighted away from the average person. I think that we've seen the successive cuts to legal aid over the years, the removal of whole areas of legal aid from the budget to making it, you know almost impossible to get legal aid even for some quite fundamental things meaning that people's access to justice is being removed perhaps not that the laws themselves or the ideal of the rule of law is at fault but the system which allows that has become um weighted in a direction which no longer serves the average person i suppose i'd also say that most of the time when the laws are protecting people it will be working because they won't notice that's probably true I think that we probably we spend a lot of time in our lives walking around eating meat from the supermarket, which is untainted mm. um, and things like that, where we don't even realise. And I think that's the that's the that's the good thing, isn't it? Is that when the, the law is working well, you don't see it happening because it's yeah. so much of it should be behind the scenes so that people can just get on with their lives with a degree of certainty. And actually when you do what I do, we talk to other fact checkers in other countries all the time. One of the things we take for granted in this country is freedom of expression, the ability to scrutinise the government and powerful institutions. If you talk mm -hmm. to our opposite numbers who are fact checking in Iran, for example, or the Philippines, they are in threat of their lives, in threat of arrest, uh, in threat of continual harassment by the government and others. Um, there are bits of the law that we think of as very fundamental that we can absolutely take for granted. But the moment where you look across to what it looks like when you can't rely on them, 
uh, you remember just how valuable what we have is. But I think you're also right going back to your earlier point that what does it matter if the law says what the law says if you can't afford a lawyer to enforce it? And access to justice is a, is a huge problem and obviously a politicised one as well and one where the courts and government have have clashed and the courts have actually drawn some lines in the sand on that. Um, I think that's well outside of my scope. Uh, my, my expertise is in misinformation, but um, clearly uh, for the courts to be a trusted institution and the legal process to be a trusted institution at first has to be an institution that is seen to be available. So I wanted to move the conversation on slightly, but with, still with that theme of trust. I mean, I, earlier you talked about, you know, being able to trust the information. Previously, there was a greater respect for authority. So people trusted what the BBC told them. And that has been eroded over time, along with a sort of an upswell of or a proliferation of other outlets giving news, making it hard to sift. I've been of the view, and I'm hoping... I'm hoping I'm right, but I suspect that I might not be and you're going to disabuse me, but that lawyers have a real skill set when it comes to dealing with misinformation. We're not statisticians, but we are trained to sift and evaluate huge amounts of information very quickly and evidence um, that could be in a courtroom or a data room in a merger and acquisition. And then in theory, we are trained to present that information to people who are not trained as lawyers. So. Do lawyers have a good skill set? And, and if we do, how should we be responding to misinformation? Uh, th- lawyers definitely do have a very strong skill set. And actually, Honora O'Neill, the philosopher uh, who gave the Reef Lectures on Trust in 2002, made a really interesting point about lawyers in this context, which is that when you look at systems that are designed to generate truth, like the courts, like science, they tend to have a lot of rules about how you go about it. So courtrooms have uh, duties of candor, um, duties of advocates to the court and not just to their client. Um, Contrast that with politics for a second and ask yourself whether the politicians you see in positions of power and responsibility behave like advocates with a wider duty to democracy or like car salespeople with a duty only to the bottom line. Ultimately, if we're going to have a healthy democracy, we have to have high expectations of people in public life, and we have to expect them to have a commitment to something other than their own cause. Now, with lawyers absolutely sifting evidence, judging evidence, covering a huge mass of material, those are valuable skill sets. I've been very proud. We did a project for a few years with a dedicated legal fact checker in, in full fact, and that skill set is enormously valuable in our world too. I think the communication is an interesting side though, because a lawyer's job is unlike a fact checker's. A fact checker's job is to give people information to make up their own minds. An advocate's job is to give people information that helps them make up their mind in your favour. <laughs> and it's a slightly different skill set. I think each can appreciate the other. Um, but the amount of effort me and my colleagues go into trying not to take sides is, I would submit humbly to the excellent advocates of the bar <laughs> and the solicitor's profession, um, actually even harder 
than trying to be an advocate and argue to a conclusion because you have to confront what are the assumptions you bring to the table what is the nuance of the use of language that pushes something one way or another you know a classic of this in the world of fact checking is do we talk about government spending or spending public money or spending taxpayers money or investing all of these are terms that politicians would cheerfully use to refer to the same thing, and all of them have connotations and make something sound either like a great idea or a terrible idea, uh, depending on how you say it. So, yes, lawyers, I think, have a very strong evidence skill set. They also have a very strong communication skill set, but a slightly different one than those of us who tackle misinformation are usually deployed. I think that's really interesting. And I think it's starting to unpick something which is, um, which I've been thinking about for some time. I think that lawyers like to think that we're independent. Um, I think that we revere the idea of an independent judiciary um, as a check on government. I think that we are raised from our early legal education to be independent and I think some of that does come from the idea of the cab rank rule, that you will defend whoever shows up on your doorstep. You will act for the client that walks through your door uh, and that you will be independent and neutral and you would act for a government and you would act for an NGO or a campaigning organisation. It's all one, isn't it? Um, but the reality is that people specialise, that lawyers are paid by clients and have to tout for work to clients, and that changes how you approach things and, and the things you say in public. And it's very interesting to me to hear you sort of pick upon the idea that actually the thing that lawyers are trained to do as advocates is to persuade to a viewpoint using the facts to support their persuasions um, when all the time we like to think that we're independent. And I wonder if that's part of where this kind of um, that attention really comes in that we forget as advocates that what people see is us persuading on behalf of a party because we're sitting here thinking that we're really independent and neutral. I, I think it's good for a profession to be reflective and to interrogate itself and to think about its own limitations and the diversity of the bar is one limitation that has been discussed for example. But I think the legal profession should also celebrate its independence because for all that you wind up in court or in correspondence as a fierce advocate for your client's position, before you have done that, if you have integrity as a lawyer, you have considered points of argument that you won't take because you don't think they stand up, you would not work for a client where you are professionally embarrassed. The integrity of the legal system is protected by a thousand quiet acts of integrity by lawyers themselves. And although you can always make the case that there are flaws in any human system, it's hugely important to remember that the ultimate guarantee of this system is not the rules and the structures, but it is the behaviours and the choices that individual lawyers make. And individual lawyers, in my experience, have worked very hard to try and live up to those standards. What I suppose I would like to see is more of that integrity being expected of others. I think lawyers hold an important position in public life. You do have a platform, you certainly have a voice and you know how to use it. And I think that we do need more people 
to stand up for integrity in public life and to stand against those who would misrepresent the law and the policy around the law to the detriment of ordinary people. So I would like to see the legal profession and its representative bodies actually recognise that part of upholding the rule of law is to stand up against misinformation about the law and about the rule of law. Fulfact has done some of our best work when barristers, academic lawyers, solicitors have worked with us, supported us, helped us get your specialist expertise, and then use it to challenge those who misrepresent the facts in public life. I think we are going to need more of that in the coming years. I think that's really interesting. Um, I think from my perspective, with some notable exceptions like the secret barrister, I don't see a lot of lawyers publicly speaking out against misinformation unless it is in the context of a case they're currently working on. But I, unlike the secret barrister who speaks about misinformation about the law generally, we don't see people, a lot of lawyers doing that. What do, you, what do you think is holding us back from doing that? And how do we get over it as a profession, if indeed we should? I'd, I'd first like to say how grateful I am to those lawyers who are publicly out there explaining the law. Um, there are practicing lawyers, there are academic lawyers uh, who do a great job of being explainers. Um, I'm thinking about everything from public law for everyone to David Allen Green's work, The Secret Barrister, um, and those are hugely valuable. What I think is notable about what we see at the moment is it's very often a sort of add-on a sort of separate thing, a secret barrister as a separate identity or a career in itself as a legal commentator. Um, I think if we want to protect integrity in public life, then our professions need to see standing up for the accuracy of information about their fields as their job, as a core part, an ordinary part of doing your job. So barristers who are specialists in the family courts or equality law or immigration law, or commercial law, or shipping law, or whatever it might be, need to be ready to respond when those fields are misrepresented, and to see that as part of their role, and to challenge those who are misrepresenting their fields. In exactly the same way, we've had the same conversation with academics, where we know that policymakers very often distrust academic research, because there is a certain amount of low-quality academic research heavily promoted, it's hard to know what to trust and what not to. And the case we have made to learned societies is they need to be more vocal in standing up for what they believe good quality research looks like so that wider society will track into that and trust the work that they are there to defend. We need legal bodies, the specialist bar associations and legal associations and individual lawyers to be willing to do that. And as I said earlier, Individual lawyers have volunteered their time with Full Fact to explain their areas of work, to re review drafts we've written, to draw our attention to things we should be fact-checking or getting corrections for. And I am hugely grateful to those people. But I think too often it's seen as a, an extra. And more and more in this fragmented world of information that we now live in, we need to see that as a core part of working in a trusted profession. Do you think that there is a perception that being vocal about the truth is somehow now perceived as a political thing? I think it can be. 
And I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned running full fact for 10 years is about tone. You can do that in political ways and in ways that are seen as partisan or in ways that are partisan. But if your tone is consistently what we refer to as playing the ball and not the player, if you talk about the accuracy of the statement, not the honesty of the individual, then it's much harder for people to interpret what you're doing in that way. So I would encourage people to stand up for the integrity of the law and public debate about the law rather than be drawn into confrontations with individuals. That's very wise. I just One uh, last note, I think, before we go. Um, I think from my perspective as a lawyer, something which has informed me from my, the very earliest days in my career is the idea that I am, a G- I am an officer of the court and I have a duty to uphold the rule of law. And I have a duty to the court which is separate to my duty to my client. And I think a lot of lawyers hold that perception of themselves as, as quite important. Do you think that the um, perhaps the Solicitor's Regulation Authority or other groups should bring in a duty to the truth? I don't know enough about the regulatory system to answer that. I know that lawyers have a duty of candour, um, but I think... Let's go back to that origin of that officer of court, where the court would be in your local community and everybody could see it hundreds of years ago. And now the courts have become a bit more remote and many people will never see the inside of a courtroom or really know what the law looks like day to day. Perhaps it's time to recognise that what it means to be that visible officer of the court looks different in the 21st century and requires a bit more in outreach and communication and building trust than it did when people could walk to the end of their village to see the court in operation. The hearing. The part of this interview that I found really compelling was Will's suggestion that lawyers should accept combating misinformation as a part of their day job, making a statement to the press to correct lies and misconceptions regardless of where or who they are coming from, perhaps a role of officers of the truth to go with our roles as officers of the court. Why is that important? I think that a quote from the Chernobyl TV series has brought it home to me in a way that nothing else ever has. What is the cost of lies? It's not that we'll mistake them for the truth. The real danger is that if we hear enough lies, then we will no longer recognise the truth at all. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.